From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For the first time, voters statewide will be asked to weigh in on affordable housing. It's an issue that's also central to some local measures this election cycle. This is just not affordable for our workforce. And so we're trying to do everything that's possible in order to keep our workforce in our town and in our county. Then we remember a trailblazing judge in Colorado whose many firsts cleared the way for other women in the state judiciary. And later, we meet the new conductor of the Colorado Symphony, whose passion for the arts transcended what could have been a career-ending moment. It became evident to me that if I wanted to continue to share my love of music with audiences, it was not going to be as a violinist. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Shonda Thomas-Whitfield. This fall, for the first time in Colorado, voters statewide get to weigh in on a question about the lack of affordable housing, specifically whether to dedicate tax money to try to address the problem. About a dozen communities in Colorado will ask voters locally to do something similar. CPR's Rachel Estabrook is here to tell us more. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Chandra. So let's start with the basics. What local communities are asking voters about fixes for affordable housing? A lot of them are in the mountains or ski communities. It's probably unsurprising at this point that places like Steamboat Springs, Dillon, Estes Park, the Roaring Fork Valley are struggling to have enough housing at the right price for people who work in those areas. So all those places I just named Mm. have some kind of tax questions having to do with affordable housing this year. And they're asking voters to raise or redirect certain taxes to create more housing. Mm. I'll tell you more about a community like that in a minute. But perhaps more unexpectedly, Grand Junction actually has three measures on the ballot to try to address the lack of housing. Wow, three is a lot. Why is housing such a focus in Grand Junction right now? Well, let me introduce you to Maria Luisa Perez Chavez. She told me that she has lived in Grand Junction for about 16 years. And in that time... I've seen a lot of rising prices. She's 28 now. We moved here from California, so it was, you know, supposed to be cheaper. And my dad bought a house. I still live with my parents. It makes it easier for us to all live together because... Everything is so expensive, but because we all live together, it's a home of like three bedrooms for seven people. So we're all pretty cramped in there. And um, we just can't seem to like find a bigger house that's affordable for all of us. She's thought about moving out with her sisters, thinking that they could find a place and their parents could then downsize into something more affordable. And it's really hard to find anything within our our range. She's one of a lot of people in the area having this experience. Grand Junction had a consultant study their housing issue last year to see what the needs were. And it paints a kind of bleak picture. There aren't very many homes for sale. Home prices have gone up more than a third in the last 10 years. And people are paying bigger portions of their income for their housing each month. Well, in general, it's considered reasonable to spend less than 
30% of your income on housing, you know, in order to have enough money left over for other things like groceries, transportation, gas. Are a lot of people in Grand Junction spending more than 30% of their income on housing? Yes. This study I mentioned found that more than half of renters there are paying more than that reasonable threshold for housing. So it's a huge burden, and it means that they can't save up for a down payment to actually buy a place. Let's bring this back to the election. What will voters get to decide on? As I mentioned, voters in Grand Junction will be able to decide on three questions. And other cities in Colorado have similar measures, but I think Grand Junction is the only one with all three of these. So voters will consider whether to raise or add taxes on short-term rentals and on lodging, like hotel stays. Mm. And then Grand Junction voters will also decide whether to extend the term that the city can lease land. Now, what would that do? Right. It's a little bit confusing, but the idea is to allow the city to lease out land for affordable housing and to make the terms of those leases a lot longer, up to 99 years. And in theory, that would make housing developments a more attractive investment and put the city in a better position to get funding from the federal government to develop housing, which is probably the most important part. Would you say these measures are controversial? There is definitely some opposition. The Grand Junction Daily Sentinel has talked to people who list on sites like Airbnb and feel Mm. like they won't get as much business if they have to increase their prices to account for the new tax. The local Chamber of Commerce is opposed to the tax measures. And I talked to the head of another local business group called the Horizon Drive Business Improvement District. His name is Jonathan Purdy. They represent almost three quarters of hotels in Grand Junction. So it makes sense that Jonathan objects to the lodging tax hike. He points out it's supposed to raise a little over a million dollars, and he thinks the city should find that money elsewhere in its budget. Like, for instance, there's a city entryway budget line right now for $450,000 to replace the two Welcome to Grand Junction signs. So just shy of half of what they're getting from us could be gotten from just simply, and I'm not saying don't do it, but put off the replacement of the signs for a couple of years. To be clear, he absolutely understands that there is a problem of housing being unavailable or too expensive, and he wants the city to do something about it. But another point that he makes is that lodging taxes should be used to promote tourism and bring in economic activity. And he says now isn't the time to increase taxes on tourists just as the city is recovering from the pandemic and tourism and recreation are growing parts of the economy. Until we do hit that recovery, I'm not sure it's time to hit us with another taxation. What does Maria, the woman you mentioned earlier, think? Yeah, so this is actually not just a personal problem for her, for Maria Luisa Perez Chavez. She works at the Western Colorado Alliance, which is a community organizing group. They have a housing committee, and Maria has heard many stories like her own or worse. We've heard from like a lot of teachers. One specific story is from a teacher who moved out here and has been trying to make ends meet after a year. She's having to see that she might have to move away because she can't afford anything. And so many people that we've knocked on these stores are saying, like, I just got here, but the rent is too big or, yeah, I think I'm thinking about moving because I can afford to live somewhere cheaper than here. She described other folks who have given up in their housing search and she used the word stuck, like they're stuck in trailer parks. So honestly, for them, it's really hard for them to shift their mindset to being able to afford a home or being able to find one 
they're like, yeah, that's, it's pointless to try to work on it because they don't see that hope. Her group, the Western Colorado Alliance, is in favor of the ballot measures. While they know the million plus that they would raise can't buy a ton of housing on their own, Maria's mm. group says it'll create a little pool of money that the city can then leverage to get state and federal money to take bigger action. You said you'd also take us to a mountain or resort community. What do you have in mind? Anyone who's driven I-70 east of the Continental Divide has probably gone through Georgetown. Maybe you've stopped there for the Loop train ride. The easiest of the 14ers are around Georgetown. You know, like any 14ers are easy. And that brings people to town. And then there's Guanella Pass to connect Georgetown to Breckenridge. It's pretty. I haven't visited Georgetown, but I'm inspired to go now. Uh, I heard that Guanella Pass has good hiking and fishing. Yeah, and Georgetown also sells itself to tourists as being closer to the ski hills. And like many of the places where the mountains and skiing draw people in, Georgetown is having a huge housing issue. Things have drastically shifted there over the last three to five years, according to the town administrator. His name's Rick Caroglian. Rents are so expensive now in Georgetown and Idaho Springs. And this is just not affordable for our workforce. And so we're trying to do everything that's possible in order to keep our workforce in our town and in our county. Coming into Georgetown, it's real obvious. You'll see those who visit, why are our stores not open? And so you'll see Tuesdays and Wednesdays and even some days on Fridays, our restaurants shut down because they don't have the workforce to be able to, to serve tables and, and prepare food. And it's becoming a constant chronic problem, not just in Georgetown, but even in Idaho Springs and our other places in the county. The reasons why are similar to a lot of places in Colorado. It's desirable to live here, and people who have money to burn can afford to pay prices that local people just can't pay. This area in particular is, is in a resort community where we're surrounded by 15 different ski resorts. And so we're not just competing for jobs, homes, land, and businesses with just the local people, but we're competing with people across multiple states who want second homes and want to come in. And so that person, that wealthy person from California who wants a second home is targeting this whole region. And so anything that pops up that's affordable is immediately bought up. Do voters in Georgetown face similar questions like the tax measures in Grand Junction? Like in Grand Junction, Georgetown voters will decide whether to do a local lodging tax to pay for affordable housing strategies. The money would also be used for trail maintenance and for child care because Rick says there's no child care center in Georgetown, mm. which is sort of unbelievable. Like, can you imagine working without child care? The tax question is a little confusing in Georgetown because there's also a countywide measure that has to do with lodging taxes and affordable housing. But the point here is that this is an issue throughout the region, west of Denver and to the mountains, and voters are considering what they want to do about it. What can they do? I mean, if voters decide to raise taxes on things like short-term rentals and hotel stays, then what? Affordable housing is a problem nationwide. What can a city do about it? Totally. And that depends on the city. But you'll see some wanting to encourage more accessory dwelling units, for example. Others want to encourage building up and not out. They want to use city money to lease land for building Kevin Bomber at the Colorado Municipal League advocates on behalf of local governments, and he'll tell you that this is really a local issue to address, even though it is a problem nationwide, like you said. 
He expects to see moves towards more density, especially where there's transit. And whatever they can do to increase the number of owner-occupied homes, i.e. making sure people are actually living in the houses that they buy. Mm. The bottom line is that each city has its own strategies that it's laid out, according to Kevin. No municipality is just shooting blindly here. There is a community master plan. There is, uh, you know, a vision for what their community should look like in 20 years. It's a, you know, highly involved process. So all of these things are aimed at trying to stay within that vision. And now many of these places are looking for money to fund the plan. But as I said earlier, even among people concerned about the problem, there's not always agreement on what the solutions are or where that money should come from. And we've zoomed in on a few of the communities in our conversation, but this is even broader. The dozen or so communities voting on local tax measures for affordable housing range from Durango to Steamboat Springs. And Kevin at the Colorado Municipal League says all these local efforts on ballots this year are a sign of the times. Almost no community in the state is immune to this issue. You mentioned this at the beginning of our discussion, and we talked about it on yesterday's show, but I think it's worth reiterating. There's also a question statewide on the ballot having to do with affordable housing funding. Right. That statewide question would dedicate some of the state's income tax revenue to affordable housing. It would not actually raise taxes, but it could reduce refunds that taxpayers in Colorado sometimes get. Like, remember how earlier this year we all got $750? That was just tax money that the state had collected too much of and sent it back to us. If this statewide housing measure passes in the future, instead of getting a check that big, the money could be siphoned off for affordable housing initiatives, stuff that would help people afford rent or help people buy their first homes or provide services to people experiencing homelessness. Rachel, thank you so much for putting this into context for us. You are welcome. CPR's Rachel Estabrook. You may find more information about that statewide measure. It's called Proposition 123 in CPR's Voter Guide at CPR.org. And you may also get caught up on Denver's local measures related to housing at denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado Democrats control both chambers of the state legislature, but Republicans see an opportunity this year, from the governor's office to the halls of Congress. The parties are contesting for Colorado's future, and we're covering it every step of the way. Come to CPR News every day for more on Colorado's election, also at CPR.org. Many voters say they don't fit neatly into partisan boxes. We've been sharing interviews with some of those voters on Colorado Matters, and we found that there are a lot of nuances that drive people's thinking at the polls. Today, a voter who wishes Democrats would do more to create a stronger safety net. But on another issue, voter Rory Bloom says he has more conservative views. My name is Rory. I live in uh, Fort Collins. I grew up over on the Western Slope in Grand Junction and uh, moved back to the Front Range about 10 years ago. I uh, work for a uh, computer chip manufacturer running their Salesforce environment. As far as voting goes, I've been voting in national, state, and local elections since I was 18. To date, I have been pretty strongly affiliated with the Democratic Party, but in the last year, I actually changed my registration as an independent. So previously, you know, a strong affiliation with the Democrats. Now I'm finding myself less and less represented by the main party ideology. 
Part of what frustrates me is there haven't really been a lot of new ideas, either in terms of guaranteeing you know individual or minority rights or creating a stronger social safety net. It's been just kind of a push of the same old ideas that always get shot down by the conservative wing of the state and the federal legislature. And then another area where I break with the Democratic Party and identify more with the Republican Party is on gun rights issues. Not necessarily that I don't think that there's a serious problem, but I think that the proposals that have been put forward by the Democrats won't necessarily make the problem better or go away. It feels like they're using it to fundraise mostly. Um, I personally do own several recreational firearms. I have a number of my fellow liberal friends who also do own firearms. I don't carry for self-defense or anything like that, but I have taken a number of classes around it. I enjoy teaching people how to shoot. I do believe that at a certain point, there is an individual right to own firearms and that it is part of an American tradition that, for better or for worse, does create a check on government. But the problem with that is that gun culture in this country has become so toxic, and the NRA has been a big pushing factor behind a lot of that, that people treat it as a symbol of masculinity rather than a tool. People don't treat it seriously. They think that they need to own a gun to provide a sense of identity in a lot of cases. But at the same time, the fastest growing demographics of gun owners in this country are Black and Latino women. and I don't think that more guns make us safe, but I think more guns in more diverse hands keeps communities safe. I think that there are plans that neither party is willing to put forward that could actually make a difference in you know, the, the gun violence problem that we have in this country, a lot of which comes back to the lack of a social safety net and a lack of care for people who really need it. With a stronger social safety net, we give people alternatives. People can get care, you know, whether it's mental health or better access to jobs or whatever the case may be. It removes some of the perverse incentives like gang organization, social isolation, that kind of thing that creates the environment where people carry out acts of violence. Also, another part of it is at the end of the day, if we're talking just pure numbers in terms of gun violence, handguns are the number one threat and are the number one cause of most issues. Firearm suicides are a major issue, and that could potentially be addressed by a stronger social safety net. But right now, it is easier to buy a gun in this country than it is to get mental health care or even just to be able to, in many cases, afford the rent at the end of the month. I think a lot of what the Democrats are putting forward is band-aid solutions or going after symptoms of the cause, like the assault weapons ban. I mean, with the way that gun manufacturers are able to, the engineering is always going to be faster than the law. And it really just kind of comes back to, you know, we're not focusing our efforts in a place that's really going to make a difference. It's playing to the annual fundraising report and it's playing to what can easily be passed, not necessarily what will make a difference or makes good sense in terms of what's actually enforceable. I'm not a single issue voter on guns. I am very frustrated with the way that the Democrats are handling the issue, so I'm less likely to donate or provide financial support. I still consider myself very liberal, but the Democrat Party just 
they go too far in some directions and not far enough in others. Rory Bloom is a voter in Fort Collins. Our thanks to Rachel Estabrook and Michael Hughes for producing the interview. We'll share views of other voters in the days ahead. Election Day is Tuesday, November 8th. But you may vote any time before then because Colorado uses a ballot-by-mail system. Just complete your ballot and drop it in a designated drop box. Be sure to check out the candidates and the issues in CPR's voter guide at CPR.org. When we come back, you'll hear about a pioneering judge who championed women in Colorado's judiciary. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Here are candidates for the top offices in Colorado this election season on the issues in their own words. The CPR News podcast, Who's Gonna Govern, is everywhere you listen to podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. Judge Zita Weinshank is being remembered as a trailblazer who forged the path for women in Colorado's judiciary. She was the first woman to serve as a full-time Denver Municipal Court judge, a Denver District Court judge, and a federal judge for the District of Colorado. Weinshank passed away this month at the age of 89. I spoke with Beth McCann, the Denver District Attorney and a member of the Colorado Women's Bar Association, about Judge Weinshank's legacy. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, my pleasure. Describe your relationship with Judge Weinshank. So I got to know Judge Weinshank many years ago when the Women's Bar really started back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and she was always a supporter of women lawyers. And at that time, I believe she was a judge in the state court, uh, district court. And so we um, began to work together on how to get more women appointed to the bench hmm. because at that time there were very few and we didn't really know all the ins and outs of how you get appointed to be a judge. Uh, so she was quite helpful in helping us figure out how we could work together to get more women appointed to the bench. She has been described as a pioneering Colorado judge who forged a path for women in the judiciary. What comes to mind when you hear that? Well, I, I agree with that. As I said, she really helped us as we were just forming the Women's Bar to figure out how to work together and be more influential in getting women appointed. So, you know, we were young lawyers. We didn't really know how the system worked and we didn't know the politics of it. And so um, Zita was really forging that path with us. And when a federal judge vacancy came available at the U.S. District Court in Denver, Zita was interested in applying. And so we really worked hard to get her nominated and then appointed to be a U.S. District Court judge. And I believe she was the first woman federal judge in the state of Colorado. So she clearly was pioneering trailblazer for women in the judiciary. 
It's really interesting when you read about her career. It's really fascinating. She was among the first women to attend Harvard Law School, where she graduated in 1958. She's been described as brilliant, fair, and a compassionate judge. And she served as a municipal and then county court judge from 1964 to 1971, as a district court judge from 1972 to 1979, and as you pointed out, as a federal judge and senior federal judge from 1979 to 2011. And uh, we should note that she was nominated to the federal bench by President Jimmy Carter. What did it mean to you personally as an attorney to see someone like Judge Weinshank in the positions that she held? It was remarkable and inspiring. Um, She served as a role model and a beacon, I think, to a lot of young attorneys, um, women attorneys in particular, who were interested in a judicial career. Because really, we just didn't, we didn't realize all that was involved in getting appointed and how you needed to know the right people and have the right people helping you in making phone calls. And women, you know, back then weren't really in those circles. Um, and Sometimes we still aren't in those circles, but um, at that time, we really weren't in those sort of power circles, which were dominated primarily by men. So for her to go to Harvard and then be able to get appointed to all those different judicial appointments was truly an inspiration. Um, You know, women, I don't know when Harvard started accepting women, but there was a a woman, Brooke Winnicky, in the Denver DA's office when I was a young lawyer and I practiced with her, she was accepted to Harvard. But when they saw her picture and realized she was a woman, she they rejected her. I don't know what year that was, but it wasn't probably that much before uh, Zeta went. So, you know, women weren't getting admitted to some colleges, universities, law schools. And um, she really, she, she was ahead of her time, really. You talked about how she was a part of shaping how judges are actually appointed in Colorado. Explain that for those who don't really understand the impact of, you know, being a part of that process. Sure. So um, we are fortunate in Colorado that we have judicial nominating commissions. So they are commissions of citizens, some lawyers, some not lawyers, who interview applicants and then send names to either the mayor or the governor, depending on the the court. But it's important that you know uh, people who know people, if you will, who are on the commission, because although I think we have a very good system in Colorado, it's still helpful for recommendations to come in from people that the commissioners know so that they trust the recommendations of those people. And then we also started a process where the governor's office and the mayor's office would ask the women's bar for a recommendation. So to this day, the women's bar provides input to the governor's office and the mayor's office when there are judicial vacancies. So that was really important for us to achieve that level of credibility where Mm. our view is respected and trusted. It took a while, but I think it's really developed into a very powerful system. Yeah, truly a lasting impact when you think about this process continuing to this day. You know, judges have reputations and for how they rule and how they, you know, really kind of conduct themselves. How would you describe 
how Judge Weinshank carried out her job? So I believe she was always fair. She listened. She was caring and compassionate, but, you know, decisive. Um, So I think she had all those qualities that are important for a judge. She was smart. She knew the law. She was prepared. And she was listening, though, to the arguments that the attorneys made and rendered her decisions based on the law, which is what what we want from a judge, but also treating people with respect and dignity that were in her courtroom. Now, did you get to know her personally at all? So funny story, Zita and I played on a soccer team, a women's soccer team for over 30 <laughs> women. <Wow>. Over 30. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was um, several lawyers, but not just lawyers, you know, got together and there was a women's soccer league. So we were in the over 30 crowd and (laughs) we had a lot of fun. So yes, I did. I didn't, I didn't know her really well, but um, certainly enjoyed her sense of humor and her compassion and friendliness um, in a sports environment. Yes. I read that judge Weinshank enjoyed skiing, hiking, bird watching, and spending time with her family. Uh, She was twice widowed and she is survived by her three daughters, four stepchildren, 19 grandchildren and 20 great grandchildren. So maybe that's why you didn't get to know her. She sounds like she was pretty busy. (laughs) She was busy, but she was very devoted to her family. In closing, you know, Put this into context for us. What should Coloradans know about the legacy and lasting impact of Judge Zita Weinshank? Definitely that she was a trailblazer for women to serve in the judiciary. She was supportive. She was inspirational and really paved the way for many of the women who are on the bench today. And we have a lot more women now. And I think in large part, thanks to Zita Weinshank. She was, she was a trailblazer. Beth Buchan, thank you so much. You're welcome. My pleasure. Denver's District Attorney Beth McCann helping us remember Judge Zita Weinshank, who passed away earlier this month at the age of 89. Weinshank was the first woman to serve as a full-time Denver Municipal Court judge, the first woman to be a Denver District Court judge, and the first woman to be a federal judge in the U.S. District Court for the District of Colorado. A memorial celebration of her life is planned to take place in Colorado next June. Car thefts in Colorado have become an election flashpoint, but as CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry tells us, both major parties are now working on a solution together. Thanks to you, we are now number one in the country in auto theft. Has anyone seen my car? The messages about the high number of car thefts in Colorado have been everywhere on the campaign trails, from governor all the way down to local races. Colorado has an auto theft problem, and this person is to blame, or that person is to blame. Because as I look at our state, we are in crisis on so many levels. We're number one in the country for car theft. That's Republican John Kellner. District attorneys fail to prosecute car theft effectively in some communities because they're focusing on other things. That's their decision. And that's Democrat Phil Weiser, the candidates vying to be Colorado's next attorney general. 
But beyond the fighting, something interesting is happening behind the scenes. Democrats and Republicans are working together to strengthen the penalties for auto theft. Tom Raines is head of the Colorado District Attorney's Council. We'll have a draft bill that says any car stolen, regardless of value, is treated the same way under the law. Since the 1990s in Colorado, when someone gets convicted of stealing a car, the penalties are more severe if that vehicle was more expensive. Since 2019, the number of auto thefts has exploded. And everyone, including Democratic Governor Jared Polis, started to realize how the system was unfair. If I'm low income and I have a $2,000 beater, if it gets stolen, my ability to replace that is a lot less than somebody. It's just completely elitist. Christy Donner runs the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. She supports getting rid of the value-based penalties on auto theft, along with the district attorneys, polis, and both attorney general candidates. Donner doesn't think turning every auto theft in Colorado into a felony is going to necessarily reduce the number of crimes. She did some back-of-the-napkin math and had another idea. So for the, the cost of putting 20 people in prison for one year, you could buy 31,000 steering wheel locks. Whether strengthening the sentences for auto thieves will help alleviate the state's theft problem is still unclear. But politicians do seem to agree that at the very least, it will be more fair to the victims. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When smallpox came to a gold camp near Hoosier Pass, the women all went to fair play, except for one. They called her Silverheels. We don't know her real name, but we do know she was known for her moves in silver-heeled slippers at the dance hall where she worked. And we know that unlike those who fled when the epidemic hit in 1861, she stayed, paid for doctors, and cared for the sick and dying. Then she got smallpox herself, and then she vanished. Years later, a woman came to walk the cemetery. She wore a heavy veil. She returned the following year, and again the year after. No one saw her face, but they were certain it was the angel of mercy of South Park come to put flowers on the graves of departed friends. Her true identity was never disclosed, but maps still carry the name of a nearby 13er they named for her, Mount Silverheels. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With the support of Sheets and Giggles. A neurological disorder caused spasms in his hand, but he didn't let it keep him from his passion for music. So Peter Ungen traded in his violin for the conductor's podium, and his creative journey led him to Colorado. He's the new principal conductor of the Colorado Symphony and also the music director of the Colorado Music Festival. He spoke with CPR's arts and culture reporter Eden Lane and CPR Classicals' Jesse Jacobs. You have now year-round commitments to Colorado. And does that change Colorado as your perception of of home? It does somewhat, yes. I mean, I've lived in Connecticut or New York for a very long time, actually. Connecticut for 35 years now, actually. So suddenly we have a second home in Boulder, and it's an absolutely beautiful place, as everybody seems to know. We, we did have a second home in Toronto when I was music director of the Toronto Symphony, and our kids actually went to school there. So that was the only previous time that I felt like I lived in two places. But I'm delighted to live this close to such beautiful mountains and wonderful people and great communities. You have two major jobs here. Tell me about how you balance all of these obligations you have around the world and the two you have here in Colorado. 
Well, the good thing about the two I have in Colorado is that they happen at different times of the year, generally. I mean, the Colorado Music Festival is a six-week festival that starts towards the end of June and ends about the first week of August, whereas the Colorado Symphony, although they do play in the summertime, that doesn't particularly involve me because my main obligation is to look after the season programming, which begins somewhere in September and ends somewhere towards the end of May. So there is no real crossover or tension, therefore, between these two organizations and their performances. And we just had your first since you've been the principal conductor with the Gershwin concert. Were you able to select the pieces for this season or was that already in place before you began? No, actually, I've been in an advisory role for quite a while now. So all of this season's programming was done in consultation with me, which was lovely because, you know, it's always nice to be conducting the things that you've planned And it was also lovely that before the first week, we had a kind of celebration opening with my former violin teacher, Itzhak Perlman. And so we did a lovely program of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony and then Itzhak Perlman playing all kinds of fantastic Hollywood themes. So that was a really beautiful two weekends for me to to launch my uh, relationship with the orchestra. Tell me about having Itzhak Perlman as your violin teacher. Oh, my goodness. Well, actually, the story goes back to when I was just planning to go to New York to audition. And I was very nervous about auditioning for the Juilliard School because I figured everybody played about up to the level of Itzhak Perlman. Anyway, I called somebody I knew not very well, but somebody I thought would be a really good person to play for. And he said he was going on a business trip the next morning, but then he asked me by chance if I could go to his house that very moment. It was about 6.30 in the evening. So I drove over and he welcomed me and opened his door. And in his living room, Itzhak Perlman was sitting (laughs) because I had no idea, but they were quite good friends. And Itzhak Perlman had just played the Beethoven Concerto at the Royal Albert Hall at the Proms. This was back in 1975. And he was so kind to me. It was absolutely fantastic. And I sort of stayed in touch with him. And, and I should say, he, he asked me to. He said, you know, please let me know if you have any problems. And after three years of studying at Juilliard, I left for a year to study with him. At that time, he was teaching at the Brooklyn College Music Department. He now teaches at the Juilliard School. But in, in my time, I went to Brooklyn College to study with him. And, and it was wonderful, incredibly inspiring. He's an extremely generous and completely unpretentious person. And he is, you know, one of those people you you really admire and look up to. I would love to know the difference between, you know, playing with Itzhak Perlman in a violin capacity versus, you know, welcoming him to the stage, you as conductor, him as soloist. It's a lot more nerve wracking to play the violin in front of him than it is to conduct. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, about 10 years ago, Itzhak was coming to the Toronto Symphony to celebrate our 90th anniversary. And at a very weak moment, I, who had not played the violin publicly for 15 years at that point, agreed to play the Bach double violin concerto with him. Uh oh. <laughs> I mean, talk about a regrettable decision. But uh, because the reason I hadn't played the violin in public was not just because I didn't want to, it's because I had a problem with my hand, which never really changed. So I, I had issues controlling my left hand. Um, and it's if you have issues controlling your hands, you shouldn't really play a musical instrument. I mean, it's, you know, uh, so 
anyway, I practiced like mad and I finally did walk on stage with him to play the Bach double concerto. And that was just about the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done. Walking on stage to conduct him is just simply a, a privilege, just to be in his presence, to to make music with him and to help the coordination, you know, between the orchestra and his beautiful playing. I mean, that's just simply is the greatest privilege one can imagine. You talked about making that switch from playing violin to being a music conductor. And that seems like just an intellectual decision. But can you talk about what it felt like to make that choice when you were confronted with a physical limitation? Yeah, it was a very interesting time. I mean, it became evident to me that if I wanted to continue to share my love of music with audiences, Mm -hmm. it was not going to be as a violinist. And although I love teaching and I love trying to inspire the next generation, absolutely, I did feel that I wanted to continue to somehow be able to have a presence as a performer and share that live experience, which, you know, you don't quite do when you're teaching. You prepare Mm -hmm. somebody else to do that. I was very fortunate that I'd sort of developed a great curiosity for conducting when I was very young, because I sang in a a sort of decent school choir. But for some reason, Benjamin Britten, a great British composer, found out about this choir and came to our school and auditioned us to make recordings with him. And I mention this because he was a, not only a great composer and a wonderful pianist, but he was a fantastic conductor. And I observed spending one hour with Benjamin Britten just how different the sound of the choir was by the end of it and how much more expression we had, how much more flexibility we had, how much more character we sang with. And I found that really fascinating. We made several recordings with Britain conducting his own music. And I observed him in the Midsummer Night's Dream recording conducting the London Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. uh, for many, many hours during the day. And I was just fascinated by it. Because let's face it, most of us don't go to rehearsals or recording sessions. We just go to concerts. And you don't really see an awful lot of what a conductor does when you just go to th- the performances. It's showy, but it doesn't reveal the real collaboration between the conductor and the musicians during the performance. Exactly. You know, how do you, I mean, he was a very cajoling character. He was very funny mm-hmm. and just, just a charmingly bossy. <laughs> Come along, lads. I think we could do a little better than this. You know, the kind of thing that you would never say anymore, but you know, times change and styles change. Um, anyway, when I went to Juilliard, I decided to, study conducting as a, as a second study, as it were. And then I was very lucky that Herbert von Karajan came to give three days of masterclasses at Juilliard. This was back in 1976. And for some reason, he decided that he wanted me to conduct. I was the concertmaster of the orchestra, and he decided he wanted to demonstrate something by having me conduct. He did ask me if I'd studied conducting at all, which I, to which I mistakenly perhaps said yes. <laughs> but, but then he said, you know, now, ladies and gentlemen, the concertmeister will conduct. And he stood about two and a half feet from me and covered the music and made me conduct the slow movement of Brahms' first symphony. Wow. And what was amazing about it was just the idea that you'd be conducting that close to like the, the greatest conductor in the world at that time, or, or certainly the most famous, um, was both petrifying and incredibly inspiring. And then he said some very nice things to me about my hands, you know, they, they have this expression that you have the hands of a conductor. You know, that's 
kind of means it's it's easy to follow your hands for whatever reason. It's a little bit inexplicable, I think. Anyway, that experience never left me. And when I injured my hand many, many years later, I think that actually was a really important memory and a really important stimulation for me to have the courage to go out and say, you know what, I'm going to have a go at this now. That's a beautiful thread from one artist to the next, the way most arts are preserved from one artist to the next, dance, music. So true. And you were able to carry that through to that rather pivotal moment. That's beautiful. I'm so glad you shared that. The most important thing for me now at this stage in my career is to always show my absolute passion and love for the music. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes one wants to demand something because you're a little bit frustrated, but you never, I never want to show that I'm frustrated with anything anyone is doing because I always assume that they are doing their very best. And I think they are. And if I want something to be different, I have to express it to them in a way that simply shows that I have a love for this particular phrase that I think would be even more beautiful if we played it in a slightly different way, or if we listen to each other in a slightly different way. And this is much easier when you're at my stage in life, I think, and having been on the stage for many decades. I don't think it's a big surprise to people that I love music. You know? I don't think it's a big surprise you love music, but I think you're selling yourself short by not giving the credit you're due for developing that mindset and that attitude, because some people with that much experience would be so entrenched in their way of doing things, they couldn't give someone, another musician, the benefit of the doubt, the way you just described. So bravo. <laughs> well, that's that's very kind. You know, it comes from one kind of philosophy, I think, which is that we should play every single concert and even every single rehearsal as if it is either our first or our last. Mm. And the reason I say that is because I used to play 140 concerts a year, and that's an awful lot of performing. And I used to walk on stage sometimes really disinterested, and I felt terrible about it, but I was too tired to do anything about it. And one night we were in a little town somewhere, and we were walking on for the second half to play the Ravel String Quartet, which I'd probably played 100 times. And I felt, okay, another 33 minutes and a couple of encores and I can go home, you know, kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. And I looked out and I saw a lady whose face I can still see. And somehow her expression was like a novel to me. It, it, I could feel this entire story of this woman had probably found out we were playing several months earlier. She probably didn't live terribly close by. She'd probably driven quite far. She'd been looking forward to it for a long time. And, and there am I having the nerve to walk on and think, ah, I just have to get through this and then I can go home. When, in fact, it should be the most important thing that you could possibly do in that 33 minutes. Because people are there to be nourished and to, in some, whatever degree it is, to some little degree, make their lives a little bit better. And there's so many ugly things in our world and so many challenges and difficulties that if you are lucky enough to be a musician, you are there to to be generous to people, and not to feel sorry for yourself because you're tired and busy. So that's always remained my attitude since that evening. Did you play for her that evening? Yes. Not to exclude anybody else, but it was it was very much like that. Yeah. 
That speaks to the dialogue, even in a concert environment where you can't see us as well. It is a dialogue in that live performance moment between all of those musicians and all of us sitting there in the dark. Without question. I mean, that the, 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 that silent part of the conversation is far more important than most people realize that are sitting in an audience. I mean, there is nothing like a great audience. And I should say, Denver has an amazing audience. Boulder as well. But it's, it's sometimes it's like a rugby game when you finish. <laughs> or, you know, it's, it's like you get a touchdown. If I lift up some group of musicians who've just played amazingly, like people scream and shout uh, <laughs> with such great enthusiasm. I absolutely love that. What's your difference in approach with the Colorado Symphony and the Colorado Music Festival? In terms of conducting, no difference particularly. I mean, I'm always just trying to prepare the players in such a way as to as to hope that by the time the audience comes in that they can be really free to express themselves. That's the idea of everything we've been talking about, really. I mean, you have in front of you with an orchestra of, the, of this kind of level great musicians who have been teaching young people, high school, college, whatever, even post-grad, for in some cases, decades, right? They they are looked up to by their students and they have a huge amount of knowledge and a huge amount to offer. So to try to repress musicians like that so that you think that they'll sound more disciplined would be, to me, like a tragedy, right? <laughs> you actually want to just get them to express in the same way with one voice. So for me, it's actually, rehearsing is about liberating the players, not kind of in that negative sense, like creating a, an atmosphere of discipline. You, you know, the best way to play music together is to express things together or to phrase things together. It's, it's not really about time in a symmetrical sense. It's about the manipulation of time, which is what we do when we're trying to express ourselves. We manipulate time, we manipulate sound. That sounds like a funny word, but the knowledge of where you can go with a phrase and where you shouldn't go with a phrase is something that we spend our lives discussing. And at any given moment, we're trying to either get the most drama, excitement, beauty, spirituality, whatever it is, out of every single phrase. So, you know, the last thing I would ever want to do is to make people feel afraid to express themselves. You've got a huge pool of talent in front of you. Make them just feel free to work as one. Peter, thank you so much for your being generous with your time. Lovely to chat with both of you. CPR's arts and culture reporter Eden Lane and CPR Classical's Jesse Jacobs speaking with the Colorado Symphony's new principal conductor, Peter Ungen. Read more about him at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us and to the entire Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Shonda Thomas Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.